Welcome to Fabric of Society with Rosa Tolner Clausen and Stine Lindemann. This is the pilot episode that we call From Cottage Industry to Creative Industry, where we talk about textiles and economy. This is the first episode of what we hope will become an ongoing series of podcasts where we're looking at society through the gaze of textile making. This specific episode will consist of six interviews with experts in the field of handmade textiles, and it will include both historical and contemporary perspectives. In between the different interviews, Stina and I will reflect on what the different experts have told us, and we will end the podcast with a summary and a discussion. My background is that I have a BA degree in textile design from Royal Danish Academy of Design in Copenhagen and an MA in woven textiles at Royal College of Art in London. I first started my career in the luxury high-end fashion industry, working as a freelancer for brands in London, New York and Paris. Later, I spent a while in Ethiopia working with hand weavers and fair trade. But today I'm actually back in Copenhagen working now as an artist focused on creating social change through creativity and political activism. And I'm educated from Kolling School of Design in Denmark and graduated in 2013 as a textile designer. I'm specialized in hand weaving and my graduation project was a collaboration with the socio-economic company Blindes Arbeit or Work by the Blind in English. And since that project, I've been interested in the meanings of textile making apart from the production of textiles. So what does it mean for people to be in the textile making space? And what does the process mean for us as humans? For example, a a social interaction, creative exploration or contemplation. So today, the focal point of my creative practice is to create spaces where other people can weave in order to explore these different meanings. And this is also what I'm examining in my ongoing PhD project at Gothenburg University in Sweden. I guess that my specific interest in the theme of textile and economy originates in an interest of getting better insight into how textile making uh, as a profession uh, has developed and and how textile making is 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 and has been through history a way to generate income and then i'm also really interested in how textiles have been part of major societal developments through trade through industrialization and also uh, digitalization My motivation for this podcast is actually a little ironic because for me, actually, I can't weave anymore due to a weaving-related injury. I really miss it, and I'm super excited to be doing this podcast series so I can tap back into this knowledge and expertise from the textile field. I have a huge interest in manufacturing in both industry and social enterprises, but through the years, I've also realized the historical and societal importance of textiles. It's a field that's quite often overlooked. I think in part it's due to the tendency in recent European history uh, of looking at textiles as something that's inherently feminine and therefore of lesser importance. 
In this podcast, we will look at home production as a phenomenon within textiles, both in terms of the cottage industry and the hobby industry as well. Due to the COVID-19 crisis, this podcast itself will also be home production, where we interview people online rather than visiting their domains, which we actually would have preferred. But the coronavirus situation is affecting the podcast, and the theme of it is in more ways than one, because we have actually seen huge surge in interest for textile hobbies, including knitting and embroidery during this time, when many more are spending much more time at home. Lastly, I just want to state that for this podcast series, we will be focusing solely on the Nordic countries, and in particular in this episode, we'll focus on Denmark and Finland. And we want to give a huge thank you to the Nordic Culture Fund for supporting our work and enabling us to do this podcast. So this podcast takes place in three parts. And in this first part, we begin with a historical perspective. first two interviews we'll get into is looking at textiles and economy in the Nordic countries in the historical context. I spoke to Christine Holm Jensen from the Textile Museum in Herning in Denmark. And I spoke with Elisa Kratre, who's a researcher in Finland. And we are specifically dealing with, with the notion or the concept of cottage industry which might be useful to translate. In in Swedish, one would call it hemsløjt. In Denmark and Norway, it's husflid. And in Finnish, excuse my pronunciation, it is kortiteolisus. Yeah, so we'll be looking at this concept of cottage industry from before the industrialization happened and through all the way up till today, really, and sort of comparing what happened in Denmark with how it happened in Finland. Once we've played the interviews, Stina and I will highlight some of the key points before we move into the next talks. I'm Christine Holm Jensen, and I'm uh, working at the Textile Museum in uh, Herning. And originally, I studied European ethnology, so I'm working a lot with the cultural history in uh, this area. And especially, I've been working with the textile industry in the 20th century, but also with the roots uh, tracing back in time, because it's like 400 years that we've been working with, with textiles here in this area. What we're mainly going to start out focusing on today is the hosiery business back in like the 16th, 17th century and what role the hosier played. So if maybe you could talk a bit about that. And I think most people probably know of these words in Danish, it's hosekama, because of the famous novel here we have written by someone called Stein Stenson Blicker. And I think his novel has become the way that most people see this term. But if you could tell us a bit about it, like historically... Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's the local manor house uh, in 1630s, uh, around that time, that they start making a, a specialized production. 
uh, in a way when they they'll take some new sheep to to this area and they will uh, try to improve the wool from the sheep and furthermore they'll have people working for them it's the local farmers instead of paying their rent with different kind of crops they'll pay it with woolen socks for example so it's a production that takes place in the, in the farmhouses where the, yeah, the local farmers, uh, they'll sit and knit uh, all together. And that's where Steen Stinson Blicker gets his, his uh, stories. That's from uh, people gathering around uh, these uh, long tables uh, in the farmhouses. In Danish, we're calling it the binnestool. It's because you're meeting in the living room and you'll sit and knit. So the production is in the farmhouses and they have local wool. And it's the manor house taking care of getting new kind of sheep to the area. So they get a better product for selling. And then it's a very fast. It got, uh, it get a part of the local economy. So uh, you can kind of swap your rent for some uh, knitted socks. And we see it in the contracts that they are writing at that time. They will also mention how many socks you have to, to pay with every year. Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it's it's really, uh, it's very early that it's very important for the economy in this uh, area that we have this production. And um, the manor house, they take care of, on one hand, getting the the right kind of sheep to the area with the good wool. And on the other hand, they are collecting the, the wool products and they will send it off to people uh, selling it in different parts of Denmark. So they are kind of distributing it to, uh, uh, to the consumers. Yeah, so that way the whole production chain is really taken care of. Exactly. But nowadays, when we think about knitting in Nordic countries and in Western civilization, it's often seen as more of a woman's work type of thing. Was that also the case at this time? No, at this time, it's everybody. Everybody's knitting. So you start off when you're like five years old and it's almost on the day when you're hitting the ground, <laughs> then you'll stop knitting. So it's from it's from the start of your life to the end of your life. And uh, then it's, it's a kind of, you're learning it step by step. So in the beginning, uh, the children, they all uh, knit the easy parts of uh, the stockings, for example, and then they have grown-ups, they are knitting the heel, etc., the more complicated parts, and then it it's getting it's it's part of your everyday life. So whenever you go somewhere, you will have your yarn on the shoulder and the knitting in your hand, and then you'll just walk. And there's a lot of time and space for walking because the area is uh, heather, so you have very huge area with no buildings, uh, no farmhouses, and also that's also why a lot of people say that we have this kind of early production in this area because the ground is very unfair. At all. So it's very difficult to to grow uh, normal kind of crops like barley and and um, oat and the, the things that you usually would have for a farmhouse to live. Uh, you can't get that. So instead, you'll have uh, sheep because they can easily find something to eat in the heather. So that's also if you are looking for some explanations to why it come up, then it's also because the ground is very unfertile. Yeah, so specifically in this area, it, it was bigger. So I guess it was like the thing that you probably had an identity as a farmer, but then because it was so hard to be a farmer who actually had enough produce in this area, then the knitting became quite a big, what would you call it, partial part of the economy. Yeah, you could say that. But it wasn't the primary thing. It was always like an extra 
things done. Exactly. Right? That was a way of making your household come through the winter. For example, you could knit and then you could sell it or you could use it for rent for the for the local manor. So you could make yeah a living for your life. So um, or your family. So it has been. Uh, it's been. It's not the most important thing, but it was very important for the farmers to to live in this area. And also, there's actually uh, during sometimes there are some people coming to this area and they are they're not satisfied with people knitting so much because they say they are abandoning their farming. Uh, because they're knitting because they can earn money from from that but i think in overall it was mostly farmers and then they were also knitting as an extra income for for the house yeah because i guess you could have sort of imagined the reality where then the knitting took over and become the came the larger part but the the farming was still always the main thing yes it was but I think it's really fascinating how you're saying it could actually be part of paying the rent. Yeah. Just imagining these contracts with socks on them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny to try and imagine nowadays. Also, as a an independent textile designer, it's uh, one of those yeah. jokes I make sometimes. Like, yeah, like I can pay my rent for things that I make. Well, once upon a time, you could. You could actually, be, yeah, because it's a different kind of economy. So you could also pay with, with crops and, uh, and other. True. And it was also before industrialization, so there was no other way to produce these stocks, so their value was bigger in that way. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And that kind of leads me to the next question, like how did this tradition die out now when the industrialization came? Because I know Herning is very much the area in, in Denmark where the textile industrialization came to in a big way, and I imagine it changed the area quite a bit when that happened. Yeah, yeah. We have a period in the 18th century where it's kind of, it's not the Declining, but it's changing. So it's not the big farms. They are more and more just having farms or just farmers. And then it's the people living in small cottages and houses. They are, they start being the main producers. And then we have, it's not the manor house taking care of the distribution anymore. It's the big farmhouses. It's, that's the story that Stein Steins and Blieger is telling you, us about in, in Hosekammer. So we have this transition time, but then we come to when we come to like around 1870, then we have this wave of industrialization coming through Denmark and it also reaches this area. So we have some of these people living in cottages, they, they'll buy a machine and they will have it in still in the farmhouse. They'll have the machine and they will sit and uh, do some knitting. Um, so that's the first small, small steps. But very important to us is infrastructure. And in 1877, we have the railroad coming from Aarhus in east and heading for Renköping in west. And uh, it had to stop somewhere. So it uh, made a, they made a stop in uh, in Herning and also in Ikast and Hammerum, which is also very important textile towns or cities in this area. And then with the railroad, we had a complete transition of the the production in this area. So that you could say that's the industrialization taking place during that time. Is that because then that made the movement of materials and machines yeah. easier? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah. And also you could have the machines uh, because before that, it's very difficult to imagine, but the roads, they were actually just, yeah, just a path <laughs> uh, through the heath. So it's really difficult to take heavy machines to this area. So when you had the railroad, you could transport the, the machines to, to this area much more easily. And also it was very important with the railroad that you could have new kinds of raw material. So this is also the period when they stopped doing 
products in wool and instead we have a new uh, material that's cotton. So we have a lot of cotton coming from yeah, Egypt and other places where they produced uh, cotton. And But it, the thing is, now we have the railroad system, so you can easily attach to that. You could put it on your on a boat in Egypt and you could sail it through the Mediterranean and then on a, a rail. The railroads will take it straight to, to Hamorum, which is this, this little uh, town. So we have a change in machines and we have a change in raw materials. So that was... Very important. Yeah, but the technique remains the same, right? It's it's always yeah. been knitting that's been a focus of this area. I found that quite interesting because I trained as a weaver and I studied in the UK. And when you talked about the industrialization there, it was always about weaving. Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of had that so much ingrained in my perception of industrialization. So when I first came to Hamming, I was a bit surprised by the fact that it was so through and through the knitting. But it really makes sense when you look at it in this historical perspective. But it really started practically from the hand knitting. So even though that's really not related to how you knit on machines very much, that mm-hmm. it, had this, it evolved this way. Yeah, but I think it's very important that you're not only uh, you're not only going to focus on the technique. It's also the network that you have to your consumers, sure. because your consumers were used to knitted products, and then you're just attaching your industry to this consumer network. That makes sense. Yeah. In my opinion, that's one of the reasons why the, the knitting remains so strong in this area is that you have this network of production, their materials and techniques, and then you have the consumer network, and that's based on uh, knitted products. So to me, it makes sense that then instead of having woolen woolen underwear, then you'll have some knitted underwear. And still you can see some of the, the products like the very, the long underwear trousers for men. You can see you have it in a hand-knitted woolen version, and then you have it in a, a machine-knitted cotton version. So I think that's very important to remember the the consumer and the network for consuming. Yeah, it's it's been f- through uh, yeah from the the 1870s and then until after the Second World War, the industrial product they were mainly basic wear like underwear and socks and shirts and trousers for for working. So so it makes a lot of sense that that it was this uh, everyday product. Yeah. My name is Elisa Krateri. I would call myself leading expert of the history of Finnish cottage industry. A bit of a joke too, but also a fact. (laughs) (laughs) At least to some extent. Well, the core point is that I did my PhD in political sciences and cultural policy, concentrating on the history of cottage industry in Finland and especially the idea of cottage industry. So what was or is the cottage industry? Of course, there is kind of like a textbook definition that cottage industry uh, basically is about making craft products with your hands uh, or with the assistance of some tools or some small machines. You are making craft items at your home uh, and either for your own use or you are selling them forward. You say that that it's both 
what people are producing for personal use, but it's also what is produced for sales. Mm -hmm. Because that is one of the things that I find really interesting, this notion of optimizing spare time. Mm -hmm. What people do anyways and in their spare time Mm -hmm. should be possible to sell. And especially Mm -hmm. in the 1860s, because there is severe famine in Finland. 1860s is a decade of repeating famines and crop failures as a result. That time put cottage industry more in the spotlight, let's say that way. And then the idea of making the most what you have available, making making a good use of the time that you have, those were underlined. And again, it has to be remembered that these things or these ideas were connected uh, in many ways to the um, process, historical and political processes or political processes that were going on in Finland at that time. Finland at that time was kind of on the threshold of turning into a more governed, also economically more liberal national whole or political whole, still an autonomic part of Russia, but still like taking ideas and inspiration from from other European countries and what was going on in general. And what was going on in general was, of course, the first steps of industrialization and economic liberalization. And cottage industry concept was used in kind of educative method to take these new ideas to the grassroots level, to the life of farmers. And in a way, those craft activities that were taking place there anyway. So people were knitting and weaving and making carpentry and tools anyway. But now it was possible to categorize that work as cottage industry, Mm. especially then in the case when you are selling it forward to create income and thus becoming an independent citizen who is able to create own income and advance his or her life standards and um, taking part in modern economy. Do you see that there is a difference between the Nordic countries, uh, like how cottage industry comes about? What would I say here? There are, of course, several, several things uh, to consider about the differences, I would say that there are there are more differences towards the 20th century as, and as the 20th century goes along. But the motivation in the 19th century in different Nordic countries is actually quite similar, I would say, and that is to complete the incomes of the rural population, especially and the small holdings, the smaller farms, and then and maybe more even. Those, those people with even less who were landless, didn't own a farm or didn't own any land and were, well, how would I say, <laughs> people of very limited means. So cottage industries were very, like, they were advocated to economic independence with the help of cottage industries and had applied to all Nordic countries as well as in other European countries too. What is also interesting and uh, what I would look more into is, again, these experiences of crop failures and how those were experienced in different Nordic countries. Uh, Of course, I'm most familiar with crop failures in Finland, but because climate doesn't really make distinction between the nation states, Mm. (laughs) 
so so there were hearty as well experience of course in Norway and into Sweden too and uh, life wasn't always hygge in Denmark either (laughs) (laughs) so so that would be very interesting viewpoint for me to look more in detail into the um, socio-economic structures or and conditions in different Nordic countries in the 19th century and how that was answered with uh, cottage industry. But basically the uh, the idea was pretty similar to sustain a living for those people of uh, limited means, especially at times of hardships like crop failures. What is a major factor that creates this difference then between this, how, how cottage industry was embraced in different Nordic countries, comes with the time of uh, national romantic and the era of creating nation states. And then you can start to see some differences, how this was uh, embraced in Norway, how it was related to their uh, struggle for independence compared to Finland, where the story is pretty different, (laughs) but Mm. the goal is the same, Mm. to achieve independence as a nation state. And then again, Sweden with a very different background. But again, nationalist movement was strong also there and also in Denmark, but but on different terms again. So there is is so much to compare. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so who, because then you say that the products that were produced through the cottage industry was like rural products. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time in your thesis, it is like the cottage industry organization in Finland sets up sales points in mm-hmm. different cities. And what I was wondering about uh, when reading your thesis was like, so who was expected to buy these products and were they sold Well, uh, another kind of contradiction within this movement and idea of cottage industry is the interrelation between, I call them vernacular uh, shapes or forms. So the kind of folk art traditions and the, how would I say, the ancient models and ancient forms that were applied. And then, then especially in the turn of the 19th and 20th century, the... Um, emerging Jugendstil or Art Nouveau style that was of course favored among among the upper classes or middle 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 and upper classes in the town areas and city areas. So that, that was again a combination <laughs> and how to make that how to make that work because of course there were like expectations that those rural people of very limited education, if at all, who were used or who had learned to make uh, craft items of those vernacular forms, then would be expected to make those hippie, trendy things according to the visual forms that, that city girls and boys would have seen in the images of Jugendstil and Art Nouveau. Mm-hmm. And that, that was one thing that this uh, cottage industry organization and the magazine and the education tried to focus on, like try to make those pretty things. Like we need Art Nouveau stuff and you can still stuff. Mm-hmm. Could you could you weave your carpets and curtains in a way that, that would please the taste of, of the uh, customers in towns and cities? And, and the, again, at the same time, what was appreciated were those traditional forms and traditional motifs. So there was this eternal discussion how to make the tradition more modern 
yeah. and still ha- somehow genuine, but still like favorable to the modern urban customer. What remains of the cottage industry? I guess you're mostly familiar with the Finnish context, but mm. maybe you also have a bit of an idea in, in the other Nordic countries. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, it, and it's very dependent on what which area, which country we talk about and uh, also what sort of craft work or um, sphere of handicraft. And again, I have to say that I am most familiar with the Finnish context, obviously, but kind of the hunch I have that in Norway, for example, the tradition of bunad, I don't know how to <laughs> pronounce it correctly, but the folk dress anyway. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's the, the Norwegian strand or tradition of cottage industry. I, I would imagine that it's very significant still. Yeah. In Sweden, there are still remaining or existing quite well <laughs> this uh, organizational level of uh, like Hemslut Nemden and consulting and advisory people working yeah. professionally in those uh, terms whereas in Finland those were erased uh-huh. officially or semi-officially in 1992 by a translation of uh, the term of cottage industry. So it was advised throughout the country. So we are giving up the term of cottage industry. Don't talk about it anymore. We want to talk now about handicraft and art industry. So yeah. and at that point, cottage industry was erased. The question about what remains of cottage industries, therefore, It depends on how you approach the question a yeah. lot. Again, considering the <laughs> corona pandemic that we have at hand, we see that people are not going home like, oh, yes, finally I have the time to code. No, no they think finally you have the time to knit. Yeah. <laughs> so, <Yes. laughs> so instead of um, more computer components, people are actually buying knits and stuff for do DIY projects in the craft section. <laughs> so in that sense, the idea of cottage industry is there, like yeah. people want to make with their hands. So yeah. that that hasn't disappeared anywhere. Really on the ideological level, <laughs> I think it, it's it's stronger now than maybe in 1980s or 1990s, that there is this idea of creative industries. Yeah. Instead of cottage industries, we are talking about creative industries. And there the same values and same ideas are going strongly forward. So the idealizations of self-sustaining uh, creative entrepreneur who who is economically independent and survives this kind of nasty situations like like a unforeseeable pandemic situation without a need to cling to public support so there we are yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can ask like how much has changed <laughs> in 150 years of course yeah. a lot but yeah. this kind of um Logic is still strongly there, like yeah. the the smith of your own happiness. That yeah. that uh, image is stronger there now than than a couple of decades ago. Well, so I think for me, I take 
two main points with me from this talk with Eliza. And one is how cottage industry in Finland is a way to introduce a modern industrious mindset to the rural population in the country. And then at the same time, I also think that this idea of what is produced is very intriguing. On one side, they romanticized the rural product, but the rural product also had to be adapted to the city people and the trends of the time. So there is this a little bit of a conflict there, I find, which is quite fascinating. And I think what I would particularly connect to the Finnish cottage industry is the idea of cultural heritage and national identity. For sure. And it's interesting because if you then look at the cottage industry in Denmark, in the Henning area, it was much more of a really practical nature. You had a lot of farmers who had a difficulty making enough produce And then you had some larger estates in the area that found out if they provided sheep and thus materials, then they could start off this extra industry where they could create everyday knitted accessories. So you had this split economy where you had two different things you were doing. And then as the industrialization came, the same products kept being made, but what was changed was the materials because suddenly you could get cotton and how you made it where before you were hand knitting and now suddenly you could get these machines because you had the railroad. But throughout this process, there was never any mention of like national pride and identity and or in any talk of design, really. It's completely practical through and through. It's very much this kind of business-minded sense to it. Yeah, no, I agree. And then what they share, the two types of cottage industry or the two different uh, contexts, is that they are um, it's home production as complement income for struggling farmers and and that they are response to conditions yeah. either famine as in the case of Finland and poor soil as in the case of of Herning. yeah so it's really a matter of crop difficulties that gives both places this need to adapt and change but it seems like The emotions around it are quite different and the approach in how to do it is also quite different. That was it for the first part of From Cottage Industry to Creative Industries. We hope you will stick around for the next part.